Freelancers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert. Gosh, I forgot to think of something to call you ahead of time. Bro Camp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Well, hello. I think that's as good as any, actually. That was very dramatic. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, well, in this week's episode, we're joined by Jay Money. He's the founder of Budgets Are Sexy and All-Star Money. And I try to make sense of non-fungible tokens. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's ludicrous? <laughs> It's not that ludicrous. There's nothing uh, that ludicrous me. about it. Okay. Persuade me, actually, I think is the white word. Yes. Well, bro, if you're like me, when you first saw the acronym NFT show up in your tweets, you got as far as not for, and then you realized you were quickly going down the wrong path and trying to decipher it. NFT stands for non-fungible tokens. Now, from there, if you're like me, you thought it had something to do with mushrooms, maybe Mario Brothers. I don't know. So then you read a paragraph of an article, got bored or confused, and moved on with the knowledge that all of your assumptions were wrong, but then you didn't actually replace it with any real knowledge. Okay, and so that was fine until you started seeing NFT everywhere, and you realized that maybe you should learn what it means and also, you have a podcast taping coming up, so here we are. And it's not that ludicrous, bro. Stay with me. All right, we'll so we'll Mitchell, <laughs> Mitchell Clark uh, wrote a delightful article on The Verge explaining NFTs, so I'm largely relying on that. Also, Wired, New York Times, and a few other places. Let's go. All right. Non-fungible tokens are essentially a way that you can claim ownership of a digital thing. So think music, art tweets. Yes, these are all reproducible, but so is a postcard of the Mona Lisa. So non-fungible tokens exist on a blockchain, at this point mostly Ethereum, but others are getting on board. And there are online marketplaces like OpenSea, Rarible, and Nifty Gateway, where you can buy and sell the official ownership of the digital thing. Again, we're talking music, video, art, animated GIFs. Now, for artists, this provides a new way to sell your work. And you can also set it up so that you get a little kickback every time the NFT changes hands with a new owner. Well, that's nice. So right now, you're like, bro, why would someone pay millions of dollars for an animated GIF when you can just download it for free? Again, why would someone buy a Monet painting for millions when you can get it on a mug from the gift shop for $15? And so it all comes down to the basic tautology that some things have value just because someone decides it has value. Now, for some people, the value might be bragging rights. To that end, you get to buy an NFT for a digital drawing of a cat because you are looking for a new way to show people you are wealthy. For others, the value might be about your fandom or support of an artist or musician. Kings of Leon, Grimes, Deadmau5, and many others have released NFTs for music and art. And for others, the value might be purely speculative. You're buying the NFT for a digital drawing of a cat because you think it will rise in value as many other people agree they want that authentic digital drawing of a cat. And you're like, seriously, digital cat drawings? Yes. 10 years ago, a guy named Chris Torres created the animated meme Nyan Cat. 
you know it as the flying cat with a Pop-Tart for a body and it's leaving a rainbow trail behind. As soon as you Google it, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, Nyan Cat. I totally know what you're talking about. So in February, Torres created an NFT version and put it up for auction. And it sold for nearly $600,000 following a last-minute bidding frenzy. Other NFTs out there, William Shatner's dental x-ray, digital baseball cards, photos of Lindsay Lohan, and the first tweet by Jack Dorsey just sold for $2.9 million. Don't feel too bad because the proceeds are going to go support a charity. So there's that. NFTs are definitely booming right now with probably more speculators than collectors and fans driving up prices. But experts looking beyond the boom see a great opportunity for a new way to guarantee authenticity. So for example, Nike already has a patent to create NFTs attached to shoes to guarantee their authenticity called CryptoKicks. So when you consider that a pair of Air Jordan 12 flu games are worth more than $100,000, yeah, I think I want an NFT with that purchase, please. And maybe you're still skeptical, like a bunch of people in the comments of the articles I read. But seriously, how is this all that new and different? It's not like people buy sneakers, art, or baseball cards for the value of the materials themselves. They buy them for the aesthetics, the design, the rarity. As the New York Times quoted Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz, a $200 pair of sneakers is like $5 in plastic. You're buying a feeling. And right now, the feeling that NFTs offer is similar to one a stamp collector or baseball card collector or art collector or someone in fashion or even a speculator might feel. It's that feeling that you are special because you own something someone else wants. And that, bro, is what's ludicrous. Or really, is it? Come on. I'm too sexy for my shirt. Too sexy for my shirt. So sexy it hurts. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines sexy as, quote, suggestive or stimulating. And I'm sure that when you hear those words, the first thing that comes to mind for you is a budget, right? Well, if not, then you haven't met today's guest, Jay Money. Not his real name. Founder of the offbeat personal finance website, BudgetsAreSexy.com. Jay Money, welcome to Motley Full Answers. Hello. I love that intro. I'm going to record that. Take that everywhere with me. I love it. <laughs> so let's start with uh, some biographical info. Ready? So you're a military kid. Your dad was in the Marines. You yes, studied, sir. You studied graphic design in college. Tried to make it in the Big Apple in New York City for a while. Returned to D.C. And you had kind of all kinds of oddball jobs. Customer service, working in a stamp factory, I think wading into the exciting world of ringtones or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but then in 2007, you and your fiance, who is now your wife, began looking for an apartment. And why don't you take the story from there? Oh, yeah. We uh, started to look for an apartment because we were going to live together and um, took a wrong turn uh, one day. And we saw this nice townhouse that was near water and it was for sale. And so, of course, you know what you do when you're looking to rent is you go and look for a house for sale. Um, called a realtor. He was amazing, uh, good, at, amazingly good at his job. He came, showed us the house and in a nutshell, within 48 hours, no money down, no real plan. We literally spent $340,000, $350,000 on a house uh, when we went to rent a two-bedroom uh, place. 
Um, and that, and that really, you know, a was a, a crazy spur of the moment thing. You don't, you know, usually want to do. Um, but that really opened my eyes to like, wait, maybe I should pay attention to my money. Um, I went Googling how to budget all that good stuff. And, uh, I came across all these blogs, all these people talking and, and sharing real life numbers and real life budgets and net worth. And that was like mind blowing for me just seeing real numbers. And so that inspired you to form a website called budgetsaresexy.com. Obviously, the name is uh, catchy. By the way, when I was looking up the definition of sexy, I saw synonyms was bodacious. So I don't know if budgets are <laughs> bodacious was something also you considered. Um, but how did you decide on the name of the site? Um, yeah, so um, <laughs> uh, at the time, Justin Timberlake's I'm bringing sexy back song. That's how long ago it's, you know, 12, 13 years old now. Um, and I loved it. And, you know, and money, like when I started reading for about six or seven months online, like I thought people were interesting, but it was kind of like the boring stuff over and over again. And I'm like, you know what, if I'm going to start writing, I want it to be fun, edgy, you know, like if you have sexy in it, right? Like all like millions of search, you know, I mean, you're going to get all these people from Google come in. You know, I was trying to game the market a little bit, game the system. Um, but really, I just thought it was fun. And, and to me at the time, like once I got my budget going, like I realized it gave me kind of confidence. Um, and I was like, ooh, budgets give you confidence and what makes you sexy is confidence. And so it kind of, you know, just did it for fun. And, you know, now people can't eat some, some people it's blocked at work. You can't even get, get to it. So that was like my, my grand scheming didn't even work in the end for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, also probably cause you use some colorful language here and there every once in a while. And uh, I do. Yeah. Yeah. But that's fine. I, that's fine. It's part of the character of the whole thing. Well, and I find too, like for me, as I learn, like talking to someone, you know, at a coffee shop or just, you know, a friend and you, you try and be, you know, you're real because you're talking in real life, you know? And so for me, like people that do that online, like it resonates with me and I feel like I'm there in the room. And so I try to not monitor myself with that, um, you know, as best as I can, at least. One point you alluded to is that you found these other bloggers out there basically opening their monetary kimono and showing their net worth, <laughs> which is... Which is something you do, which is, I assume, why you have a pseudonym, because J Money is not yeah, your real name. Right, um, right. So tell me about that. That takes a lot of guts, in my opinion. Yes. Well, um, I'll say it's a little easier when you don't have money. And at first, when I first started, you know, like I was in my mid-20s, I'm now 41, 42. Ah, who knows? Um and so I started tracking, and at the time I realized I had about forty or fifty thousand dollars, like in in four hundred one k and in some cash, you know, money, but not you know a drastic amount. So I was never really worried about like I didn't get nervous sharing it at all. Um, but I was nervous because I talk about work a lot on my blog. Um, so I decided to be to be anonymous there, and then I knew in a perfect world, hopefully, the money would grow. Um, and so I started sharing from the beginning what was my savings, investments you know, debt, car payment, um, mortgage, you know, once I had that now, and that really helped me to, to really track over the years and see what I was doing good and bad. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, this is blasphemy, you know, for me to say, but I stopped budgeting about five or six years ago. And now all I do is track my net worth. And like that number alone keeps me on track, keeps me motivated, you know, and again, you could see your, your transformation over the years when you, you know, publicly, uh, publish it like that. And uh, I think you're comfortable with me sharing with the world that you're a millionaire at this point. You're hey, excited. Yes, yes. No one, no one cared when that happened. Like, I was like, oh, that was fun. You know, that should be a celebration, you know, but no. Um, <laughs> but that is your net worth, right? It's about 1.1, 1.2 million at this point, something like that. Yes, yes. Um, and I published, um, you know, all the way up until basically I, I, I sold the blog to a wonderful, wonderful company you might have heard of called The Motley Fool. 
Um, and so, yeah, that was my last like hurrah, like we crossed a million, you know, um, and then that felt like that, you know, I think after that, I would start feeling a little weird sharing because like the numbers get higher with COVID and everything, like just a whole, whole brand new world, you know, so um I think you were doing two things that I think are probably helpful. And that is, first of all, the, the tracking and the sharing of your net worth, because they kind of they kind of involve a little bit of accountability. Um, and do you feel like that helped you at all? Like when you put it out there, you're like, OK, I, I actually have to take this seriously. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, because especially if I if I you broadcast it to, you know, all around the world, you know, like I know I have to back it up or at least just say, hey, I did something stupid. You know, so every time I had the credit card or I was thinking of a big decision, I always thought immediately, like, what is going to happen to my net worth report? You know, and it's kind of stupid and nerdy, but at the same time, like it really did stop me from doing, you know, a lot of crazy things, you know, at that time that I was interested in doing. Um, So, yeah, it helped me kept uh, accountable, helped me kept on track. Um, and really that was, and now the net worth was what got me interested in the financial blogs, you know, in general was the real life transparency from real life people. I just, I just love that. So besides budgets are sexy, you kind of built up at one point, a, a sort of a mini blog empire. Tell us a little bit about that experience of, 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 you know, I mean, you're, you're essentially like an online landlord in a way. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I didn't really know about making money online. Like I knew people had ads, you know, but I didn't really understand. Like I'm not an entrepreneur by heart. It was all kind of accidental. I started the blog for fun to be accountable, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, an advertiser would say, oh, hey, you know, here's $50 if you want to put up, put up an ad. And I was like, this is great. I'm doing it for free. You know, this is wonderful money. And then as it got going, I realized there was more to it. And one day a blog friend of mine said, hey, I can't blog anymore do you want to buy my blog? And I thought like, you, you can't buy a blog. It's like, your, it's your diary. Like, how could you buy that? But in a sense, like he was making money, like two or 300 a month, you know? Um, and it was, so it was technically a business. He said, look, we'll just hire a writer. You just manage it. You own it. And you know, whatever the difference from the income and the expenses is, is your profit. And I said, no, no. And then finally he was like, look, I think, I don't know, maybe he wanted like $10,000 for it. And then I think I got it for like three or 4,000. Um, and I'm and the number I think maybe it was making four or five hundred a month too because I remember it making a lot of sense. And at that time I said, you know what, I'll, it's worth the risk. Let me see what happens. So I bought it, and then I realized, wait, that blog gets advertisers. My blog gets advertisers. You can cross promote the advertisers, double the real estate right online. Um, and then like a light bulb came on. I was like, wow, this is great. And so then I started looking and even asking bloggers, hey, if you're ever done blogging, you know, I'd be interested in buying your site. In about five years, I had about 12 or 13 sites I was managing. Um, I only wrote for mine, budgets are sexy, and the rest, you know, they were just side side properties. Um, and that was great until I started having kids and I was working 60, 70 hours a week. And I thought, this is not like the lifestyle like you kind of want as a blogger, right? Like this is not what they think. Um, you know, and so I ended up, you know, phasing that out. But yeah, that's how it all got started. It really opened my eyes on just the online world and making money. I'm curious about one other thing that you tried during this period, and that is being sort of a money coach. Uh, what does that involve and, and how did that work out? Um, so over time, people would say, hey, like, can we hop on the phone or can I ask you questions on money? Um, and I would do it. And, and what I realized was that people, it is about money, but at the end of the day, like it was always about their dreams and always about what people wanted out of life. Um, and so when I started doing the coaching, uh, I started offering coaching a, cause it was fun and, and people were asking for it. And then I realized you were kind of like a financial therapist. Like you were talking about money, 
but it was more about like what you wanted to get, you know, out of life and, and your dream lifestyle. Um, and so, um, that, you know, I did it for about two or three years and eventually it was just so emotionally draining because you just talk about life and dreams and goals and failures, you know? Um, and so, you know, I, I would charge, you know, $50, $100 a session um, and help people, you know, to realize, you know, their dreams over the course of a few years or at least get started. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun, but, uh, but really draining. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I actually have a graduate certificate in financial therapy because I, wow, I that's a real thing. That's a real thing. It's, it's a budding thing. It's okay. only been around since maybe the late to like 2009 ish or so. Okay. Um, but because both people in the counseling profession and people in the financial planning profession realize that uh, money and emotional well-being and happiness are so intertwined that you yeah. kind of have to know a little bit of both. That's fascinating. Yeah. I love that. Uh, so since uh, people think often of of personal finance bloggers and they kind of put them into camps like there's fire minimalists, like me, family finance experts, maybe side hustle experts. Where uh -huh. would you put yourself? <laughs> um, I guess I would put myself like I'm kind of a go with the flow type of person. Like even though I'm a finance guy, like I'm very bad at planning, um, but I'm very good at figuring out like how I feel about things and, and I'm in tune with my emotions, maybe a little too much. Um, and so I am into minimalism and I am into the concepts of fire. So those are the two that I'd probably pick. Um, I have no plans on really retiring, but the financial independence part of that fire, you know, to give you freedom and, and options, you know, I think is huge. And then with minimalism, of course, the less stuff you own, the less you maintain. Um, and I'm realizing as I get older that all the stuff I thought I cared about growing up and stuff, fancy cars, big houses and everything. Like I just don't, and it actually weighs me down. And, you know, even buying that house all those years ago, that was probably like one of my biggest, you know, financial regrets because I was tied um, and emotional regrets. Um, but at the same time, it opened me up to, you know, talking to you and, and, and building blogs. Um, and so it's interesting, like a lot of people either, you know, there is the financial aspect and then there's the emotional aspect, you know, but you have to figure out where you fall. And then, you know, there's different solutions depending on, on your personality and your comfort levels. Uh, yeah, so you talked about your house. You just mentioned cars, and then the typical American budget. The house is the number one item. Car is the second item. Hmm. Uh, CNBC just published an article that cited stats from Experian, which found that the uh, new average monthly loan payment for a new car is six hundred dollars, and all uh, near six hundred dollars wow. all time high. Wow! Yes. Wow! Yes. A, lot of people, a lot of people are devoting a lot of their budget to cars. Now you, on the other hand, wow. had the Franken caddy. Tell us yeah, a little bit. Like. Tell us about the Franken caddy. Oh yeah, I miss her, man. <laughs> yeah, she was a '93 Cadillac DeVille. Um, I, I'm a, I bought it from a mechanic who had bought it from an, an older person that rarely drove it. Um, I think it had like eighty thousand miles on it, um, and um, it was like it was only three thousand dollars. And I thought, and I, at the time, this is right when I started getting into money and paying attention and kind of challenging, what do I have? What do I need? What do I actually care about? Um, and I had a, a, an SUV at the time that I paid, I think 23,000 for. Um, and at the time I was like, wow, like I can just sell that, buy a, a beater car that I actually happen to love um, and, and not have to worry, right? The, the SUV was more new. Like I was worried about rocks hitting it. I was just worried again, going back to the emotional state. Um, and I realized that you can be like, and I am a car guy to a degree, but what I know is like, I could be happy in a lot of different cars. I could be happy in a hoopty. I could be happy in a Rolls Royce. I could be happy in a lot of different ones, you know, so whatever one fits me financially is probably the one I should choose. 
you know? And so if they're equal happiness, you know, then I, then I revert to the, to the, to the Lormon and the, and the Cadillac was great. So I bought it, drove it around for many years. It kept getting in car accidents. People would hit me. Um, it was even parked and people would hit it when it was parked. And every time, you know, the insurance, you know, it wasn't worth anything. Right. But the insurance is like, Oh, that'll cost $1,200, you know, to fix. And I'm like, great. I will just take the check. I will not fix it. And so over the years, like I think it earned about two or three thousand dollars, and basically paid for itself. Um, but it was great. It kept adding character, you know, over the degrees where I just called it like a Frankenstein kind of car because it was just like bent up and it had a mishmash of different parts in it, you know, like that. I had to get street legal, you know, at least. Um, so yeah, it was a great car, and I, and I miss her. Yeah, I, I, I suppose was was kids the reason one of the reasons why you eventually had to get rid of it. Yeah, that's it, man. I'd still be driving it right now, but it wasn't all safe all the way. Some of the seatbelts in the back were weren't working. It you know wasn't updated you know um, safety stuff. And so once I had the kids, I had to make the decision. And of course, the real life babies come before you know non real life babies. So yeah, that that started the the descent into being an adult and being a father. Um, and actually a lot of the last five years is really of me coming to terms with, you know, looking for other people and not just myself all the time. Ain't <laughs> <laughs> that the truth? I mean, you've yeah. got three kids, I've got four kids and uh, mine right. are older than yours, but, uh, it, 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 uh, it keeps going. It just keeps it, going. <laughs> um, so I've already pointed out that you are a millionaire. One of my all time favorite books is the millionaire next door, which found that real life millionaires are not what you would think with the big house and fancy car. They're basically people who just find ways to live below your means. I think you completely fit that profile. Also, I know from uh, other interviews you've done on other podcasts, you've said that your wife is super frugal. And one of the findings of The Millionaire Next Door was that the wife tends to be more frugal than the husband. Mm-hmm. Um, so oh, wow. what are some good practices that you and your wife have put into place, or maybe you've seen from other couples when it comes to managing finances as a couple? Because I know for many couples, they're not on the same page. Yeah, I think um, we've played with different rules and different things. Like we first had our money separate for the first few years of dating and marriage. And then when, you know, getting into minimalism and trying to figure out a best strategy, we started combining. Um, And I know like there's certain things that she's good at and enjoys and then vice versa. And one thing that she hates is dealing with money. Um, and so lucky for me, I love it. So I said, well, let me take control of some of the stuff you don't like and I'll do it. And then some of the stuff I, that I don't like that she's good at or enjoys, um, you know, she took over. So like trying to figure out where our sweet spots in the beginning was really helpful. Um, and then of course, yes, it's good. You know, if if you can, can marry someone frugal, I mean that, and I think a lot of us too, especially when you're younger, you don't really care or think about that stuff. I did it. Like I did not care about money whatsoever when I met my wife, you know? Um, and so it's more about the connection, but as you get older and you pay, pay, pay attention to this stuff, of course, that is good if you can figure that out early on. Um, but as far as, um, different things we did, like we, we had two things in the beginning that I've done and I've seen other people do. Uh, we had like a blow money where it's just like, Hey, this is your account. I think we had like $50 a month or a hundred dollars a month that we each got and we can spend it. No questions asked on whatever stupid thing the other person thinks it is. And like that saved us from like budgeting everything and asking permission and all that kind of stuff. It was just pure like independence money. Is there anything that you had trouble letting go of or sacrificing and be like, man, there's no way I can live without that. But then you did it and you're like, you know what? This wasn't so bad after all. Yes. iPhones. I thought there was no way you can pry one of those things out of my hands. Um, And over the years, again, going back to challenging, like I'm big into experimenting and challenging myself. And one, one month I was like, you know what, like, what do I use and do I need it? And what do I like about it? What do I don't, can I swap it out? Right. 
And the iPhone, that was like the big thing, right? Like I love it, but I was like, well, what do I really love about it? Taking pictures, texting, you know, calling people, um, internet. And, you know, obviously with phones, smartphones, like you could do that with any phone. It does not have to be the iPhone. Um, and so over, over a month or so, I started, you know, really thinking about looking at other plans and then I switched and I think we were paying for my wife and I both about 150, 200 a month on cell phone plans. Um, we switched to Republic wireless. And at the time, I think it was like 20 or $25 a month. Um, and so right now, actually, even today we spend $50 a month, you know, for, for a phone that takes pictures, you know, you could text, you can get to the internet and that's $150 saving every month. Um, and, and, and that really like, A, it's, that's really hard to do is to switch subscriptions, of course, and especially a phone because it's annoying, right? Like there's no fun switching and adding numbers and doing all that good stuff. But what I realized is that it's continual money. And if you're, you do one, one hard thing first and then it continues to save you, A, if you put it in the bank account right away, you're actually literally saving it for the rest of your life in theory. You know, so that's the trick is not to start spending it somewhere else. And then which case, you know, you break even. Um, but once I did that, I was like, oh, I'm feeling good. Um, and then I later canceled cable, which, you know, nowadays isn't, you know, that common or is very common. Um, but back then, five or six years ago, like it was starting to go and and I started tiny, like breaking off some parts of the cable bill. And then finally, I got rid of that altogether and, and haven't looked back. And I think that was about 50 or $60 in savings, too. So that right there was $200 every month. And I'm not doing a thing, you know, it's thousands of dollars now. So that that was you know, my experience. And, and now that's what I do when I look at subscriptions, especially I'm like, what can I kill? Even stuff that I like, sometimes I try and challenge myself to kill it. And then you can always add it back later if you really, really miss it. Uh, I've mentioned your site many times over the years, uh, budgetsaresexy.com, because it has a great page for free budgeting templates. Um, and last week we talked about tools on the show and we mentioned, you know, like Mint, and uh, personal capital and all those. Uh, but uh, when slagging with you, you mentioned a couple of others that maybe folks don't know so much about. So I thought you'd, if you could take some time to talk about them, that'd be great. And they are Digit and Acorns. Oh, sure. So um, Digit um, is basically an app that you sign up, you connect your account with, and it's a little freaky sounding, um, but it'll basically analyze your spending and see what you can actually save. And instead of just like alerting you or telling you, hey, you can save this, Right, like it literally pushes the money into savings for you. Um, so again, it's a little freaky. They go in, analyze, push it in there, but it actually takes action on your behalf. If you are horrible at at saving, um, that's really really good. People that are good at it, like us, like it, it doesn't really make sense for. Um, but for people that just want to save, and even temporary, let's say you're saving for a trip, it'll push fifteen dollars here, you know, seventeen dollars there. Sometimes it even pushes like two dollars and like thirty cents. Like it just analyzes your stuff. Um, so I really like Digit. Um, and then Acorns is a little different. It, it rounds up all of your um, spending that you're doing. Like, let's say you bought $5.30 coffee. It'll round up the 70 cents, you know, up to the dollar and then drop that into investments. Um, so that's an easy way to invest without doing a thing all automated. Um, and again, mainly for people that, you know, aren't that good at it, that that want to do it, but don't know how it's kind of gets you going. And then usually when you get good at it, you can kind of, you know, do it yourself. And, and you know, because all these apps, you know, cost a dollar, two dollars, three dollars a month, you know, minimal, um, but at least get you going. At least you're saving and investing right away than versus thinking about it all the time. Got it. 
So as you referenced earlier in the show, you no longer own BudgetsAreSexy.com. Ah, crazy. Uh, you sold it to some crazy company called The Motley Fool. <laughs> um, you'd been writing the blog since 2008. What was behind the decision to make that transition? Yeah, a number of things. Over the years, I realized that I no longer am motivated by money or um, like empire building, taking over the world. Like I kind of realized where happiness is for me. Um, and it's in waking up, kind of working on something for a few hours I enjoy. And then with the rest of my time, just doing whatever I want to do, right? Hang out with the kids, read. You know, I'm into like cemeteries, go visit a cemetery, um, you know, collect coins, which I do for fun. Um, and so I, I, the more I, and again, as an entrepreneur person, you're always building and building. And so even going back to owning the 12 or 13 different sites, I realize that that is not like helpful for a lifestyle. It's great for money and business and stuff, but not if you want to, you know, not work as much. Right. Um, and so over the years I started selling, you know, a blog or other projects I have, um, and, and budgets are sexy. It was my baby and my, my online resume. And so that was really hard, but, I and, and with minimalism too, I wanted to get freedom and I wanted to see, I really wanted to challenge myself. Can I still enjoy what I do for a living and still be in the personal finance space without owning anything? Right. Um, and so, you know, I was waiting for the right company. I almost sold it a few years ago, but more out of wanting, you know, money and more desperation than anything else. Um, there was a few years in, in my life in, in blogging, and, and this is all on the blog where I started losing money. I started not wanting to work as much. And so I started losing money and depleting my savings. Right. And again, that was a pure lifestyle choice, but it has consequences. And so at any rate, when you guys came along, it just natural fit. The cultures are really nice. And I thought, you know what, now is the time to do it. And you guys said, hey, here's some money to buy it. We will even pay you to continue writing for it. Um, and I thought, this is perfect. Like, this is great. I don't have to worry about marketing, business, accounting, all this stuff, growth that comes with, you know, being an entrepreneur. You know, like, yes, we write blogging, but there's all this other stuff people don't think about. Um, so freedom, number one, was what was it? Challenging myself, number two, um, with the minimalism stuff. And then ultimately, you know, it was it's a four, over a fourth of my life I've been a blogger. And so I, my identity is so wrapped up in it. And I, what happens when you sell something? You know, do I go away? Do people not talk to me anymore? You're like, it's just so weird to think about, you know? And I did. And what I did is I kept my Twitter because that's like what I love. And so I still have at Budgets Are Sexy and I, and I sold and then like nothing really happened, you know, and I was still writing for it, but you know, like I'm still around. And so that was like, wow, I can still do what I want to do but I can release all of the responsibility of ownership, you know, and the same with, with owning stuff, right? Like it's a different, different mentality. And I love it. I'm big into no responsibility, even though I have like a million kids. <laughs> that you know of. That I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, one aspect of your new life is another full property. I said some way to say it, I guess is, and that is all star money, allstarmoney.com. And it, Basically, you're scanning more than 1,500 personal finance blogs and highlighting three great posts every day. So tell us, first of all, a little bit about why the financial blog community is so interesting and compelling. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to just real-life people talking about real-life money um, and, and, and sharing their stories and their ups and their downs. Um, and it's just such an, a fun, entertaining way to learn. You kind of learn accidentally. You start reading about the people, about their situations. You relate to it. Some things you're like, oh, you're an idiot. You shouldn't do that. Other times like, oh, that's great. Like, I'm going to steal that idea from you, you know, versus like a lot of corporate sites. 
you know, and you know this, they're all like, they, they all tell you what you already know, you know, like how to save money, you know, make peanut butter jelly sandwiches, cut insurance, you know, it's all stuff we all know. Everyone knows how to save money, but like what gets you to actually take action? And for me and a lot of people, it's, it's people telling different stories and, and anecdotes and stuff until something clicks, you know? Um, and so the, the community is great. And also, you know, 1500 blogs and there's probably another 500 out there. We're not tracking yet. We keep adding daily, but they're all around the world and all different types, right? Um, so you got people, you know, in the UK talking, you have different, you know, the fire groups, there's a whole group for um, physicians and money, you know, people that make a lot of money that spend a lot of money. Like how do they, you know, reach financial independence? Um, you have fire, you have, you know, LGBTQ plus you have all these different niches, you know, women, men, you know, gay, straight. It's just, it's amazing. Different cultures. So anything with money all around the world, people are writing about it. You know, and for free, like they're just doing it, right? And uh, and some make money. Um, so anyway, you know, years ago I had a site called Rockstar Finance, and I thought, you know what? I read articles. I love sharing. I'm just going to share my favorite three every day, and that way people can, you know, say, hey, here's the breadth of everything. Find a blogger that you love and start following them. You know, and you don't have to search all the internet. You can just come here every day and see what what you like and what you don't like in different perspectives. Um, and so that was it. That was the germ of it years ago, and and I bought that and and we sold it, and it kind of crashed and burned. When you sell something, you don't really want, like, think what's going to happen after the sec- or second or third person owns it. It crashed and burned and everyone missed it. And I missed it. I'm like, oh man, that sucks. Like I would, I enjoyed reading it, you know, even when I sold it. Um, and the Motley Fool team, you know, came and we talked and said, let's, let's rebuild it, you know, let's add it to the community. And so, you know, here we are now. It's awesome. That's great. So let's close with a reading recommendation or a few. It can be a book, a blog, a specific post. Maybe it was written by you or anyone else or all three, whatever. But it could be something that you know maybe had a big impact on you or something you'd recommend for people who want to be better with their money. Um, yeah. So something that's changed me a lot with mentality and just the hustle nature, if you just tend to hustle a lot and want to do everything at once was a book called essentialism by Greg McEwen, McCone, something like that. Um, and it really helps you take stock of what you're doing in career. If you're building something and kind of funneling it out all the nonsense that we do, you know, and just focusing on, you know, the, the 20% that makes 80%, you know, sense and, and growth. Um, you know, and so for me, I kind of realized, you know, like there's, there's money, there's time, uh, there's all this stuff that, that, you know, paying attention to finances does. Um, but I, I wanted time time for me is like the number one thing. Like, how do you have more time? So everything I do now structures around having that ideal lifestyle, um, and essentialism really helped me narrow that down. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of other great, you know, finance books you mentioned, the millionaire next door, um, you know, the automatic millionaires, an interesting one. I think it, all this stuff depends on your mentality. Do you just want like steps or do you want to kind of like have stories and be entertained? You know, richest, richest man in Babylon is a, is a really good storybook. Um, and again, with the personal finance, you know, community, like anything you're looking for is being talked about online, you know? And so it's so nice with the internet to be able to find everything so fast and people that are genuinely helpful and, and nice and, and not much of, you know, chaos and toxicness, which, you know, exists in other communities online, you know, <laughs> like it's hard to get mad at budgeting. I do get hate mail. Oh, that's not how you budget. I'm never reading again. Right. Like you still get hate mail, but it's a, it's a little different than other, like a political blog. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so the community is generally warm and welcoming, which also helps to the, to the, you know, the pie. 
Well, folks, our guest today has been the pseudonymous Jay Money. You can learn more about him at jmoney.biz, read his past writings at budgetsaresexy.com, and read what he thinks are the best personal finance blogs published every day at allstarmoney.com. Jay Money, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Do you know that you and I met 12 years ago? I was trying to find email to determine when it was, but it was at it was at that AARP event that I was like the I was leading some round table, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, and you were one of the first people outside of the blogging community that reached out. And it's so funny that we're here a decade later talking, and and that you guys bought budgets. It's amazing. We're, yeah, we're, we're kind of colleagues or something. There like you that. go. Yeah, <laughs> we're both a decade older now too. Unfortunately, that's true. But you still have more hair. It's mohawk <laughs> hair, but it's more hair. <laughs> Anyways, great having you on the show. All right, that's the show. It's edited non-fungibly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. Yes, of course, we do have a mailbag episode coming up soon, so send in some questions. We'll try to answer them. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.